Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio, and that was Barry Maguire, his big hit from the 1960s, The Eve of Destruction. Time now to introduce our special guest for the afternoon, the former head of anaesthesia at Gisborne Hospital, Lee Willoughby, Dr. Lee Willoughby, but she is no longer in that high-ranking role at Gisborne Hospital. In fact, she is now working in functional medicine in Gisborne, and we'll talk to her about what functional medicine is. But firstly, Lee, let's let's delve into your backstory. Thank you for joining us here this afternoon. I understand that you wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. You decided that when you were, what, 10 or 11 years of age, you said, I want to be in, in medicine. Did you have that ambition from such an early age? Uh, yes, Peter. Um, thanks for thanks very much for inviting me to come on. Um, I, um, yeah, I was, uh, I was exposed to some experiments when I was um, about to jump out of junior school um, which were related to the effects of smoking on the lungs. And we had this sort of squeezy bottle and a bit of cotton wool and a cigarette, and it was all very exciting. <laughs> and uh, I could see what, what happened to the cotton wool when the cigarette was uh, puffed by the, uh, this, the fake lung. And um, that was kind of the thing that, that got me like thinking about medicine. And um, I had a number of books um, that I bought myself or, you know, with pocket money or, or that were bought for me that were about the human body. And that was the beginning of a, of a lifelong fascination, I guess. So yes, um, it was pretty early. <laughs> All right. So you went to, to med school in Manchester, you're obviously English. You graduated in, in the mid 1990s. Were you academically strong? Did you have any trouble getting in and then through med school? Um, no, unfortunately not. Although um, I'll openly admit that I didn't do great on genetics or statistics, uh, which is quite ironic, really. <laughs> um, those were those were exams that I had to do at the end of my first year and the end of my second year, and I um, I had to retake those. Um, I uh, I didn't I didn't come from a medical family. Um, my both my parents were working working class individuals. Um, my mum was a journalist and my dad was a press photographer who then went into his own business. Um, and, um, yeah, I ended up um, wanting to do medicine in, in a, um, you know, sort of, it's sort of a, not, not a regular situation. And so I, I just was totally focused on it. So I just kept going. And, yes, I got through completely fine apart from those two subjects. I was, uh, yeah, I, I qualified in 1996. And then you specialised, didn't you? And that took more training. Specialised in in anaesthesia. Yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't really know that I wanted to do anaesthesia because I didn't really know very much about it. When you do, at the time in medical school when I went through, there was very little exposure. Um, I think I had one week of anaesthesia, and um, I found it thoroughly boring. And um, I guess that was a bit a bit to do with, uh, you know, sort of the, the types of cases that I was doing and um, sort of there's not a lot of investment in, in medical students because, you know, there's so much to learn and 
they don't necessarily anticipate that you're going to go into anaesthesia. So the investment may not have been there, I suppose, in in my interest. But um, I didn't really know. I didn't know. So I went, I thought I wanted to do medicine and I did my first, my internship. So um, as you would call it here, I did six months of medicine and six months of surgery um, and pretty much knew I didn't want to do surgery. Um, and I went from medicine to um, the emergency department because everyone was saying, oh, no, sorry, what am I saying? No, I, I did a year of medicine after I did my internship. So um, I wanted to do medicine, so I went straight into medicine, did a year, and I got my part one MRCP after three attempts because it was a pretty hardcore exam at that time. And so I was on my way to becoming a physician, but I I realised that if I just did that, then if I went straight into medicine, that I'd probably not, well, I don't know, in my view, I just thought I had to have some other experiences to be a good doctor. So I decided to do some fairly broad things, like I went to emergency department for six months after that. And um, that was really, that was really great. You know, I was exposed to all the whole breadth of minor injuries right through to resuscitation and that was really good. And then I thought, well, what else could I um, do that might, you know, sort of really make me a good physician? And I thought, well, I don't know anything about critical care. So I did a kind of a weird six-month um, sort of little standalone post, which um, was literally the most amazing job I, I did. I had done up to that point, and it was six months of... Um, of intensive care at uh, what was called Crumpsall Hospital at the time. And um, I was working with some amazing people and large, a large portion of them were, were anaesthetists. And um, I was just so, so, I was just taken, um, I, I was just so impressed with what they did that by three weeks in I decided, right, that's what I want to do, I want to do anaesthesia. And so from that point... I went into the training um, system and took me seven years. Well, it's a standard seven-year training in the UK. Um, but I also added a year to that because I did a research degree as part of my registrar training, which which no one else did in my region. Um, and um, that's probably a good subject to refer back to at some point because it gives me a lot of knowledge that um, maybe a regular clinician doesn't have and then um yeah and then I popped out finally in 2008 um as a consultant yeah well so you've obviously become very highly qualified you've worked in Britain for eight years but then in 2016 you you come to New Zealand you don't just come to New Zealand you come to Gisborne you come to provincial New Zealand what was the rationale yeah. for leaving uh, a, a big job at uh, at Manchester, at the University of Manchester, uh, supervising med students, teaching and working in anaesthesia. How can you finish up in a little backwater in New Zealand like Gisborne? What's the story there, Lee? Oh, well, um, I met my husband um, when I was doing ED or towards, yeah, towards the end of doing ED. Um, and um, he's a Kiwi. And um, I suppose it was always on the cards potentially that we might get a bit fed up with the UK and want to go to um, New Zealand. And I'd been several times, obviously. I went just after we got married. We went um, 
uh, on a number of occasions after that, um, especially when we had our two daughters um, to obviously introduce them to the family and everything. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just dreamt about coming here. I was, I loved, <laughs> I loved so many things about it. It's just stunning, stunning beauty, the people, um, the, at the time, environmentally, New Zealand stood out as, as a, you know, a really clean, clean environment. I mean, it just, it seemed, there was no litter anywhere. I was just shocked because in, in downtown Manchester, obviously, <laughs> that's not the case. Um, although maybe they're doing a better job now, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I just, I just, I had, you know, kind of fallen in love with the place and I really thought at one point, you know, oh, you know, maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. And we just sort of vacillated for a long time. And then I just got, um, I suppose, probably a bit burnt out in my job because, um, as you say, I was I was a, um, a senior lecturer at the university and I was supervising a small group of students, but they were supervised in their entirety from the beginning of med school right through to the end. I actually saw them graduate before before I left the UK, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but I, in addition, I was working full-time um, as an anaesthetist at Salford Royal, which is a teaching hospital. So I was doing a lot of specialised surgery. Um, and I worked with an amazing group of people there. Um, I, I often have pangs of, 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 of re not regret, but, but just uh, I miss the camaraderie and the immense um, innovation of that of that department and and um, and the whole organisation actually. So um, I, but it was, took me a long time to make the decision. But I, I had done a lot of improvement work. So in addition to doing my clinical job, I was in charge of um, a number of different projects and and. I had participated in a collaborative, which was to reduce um, reduce the never events, as we were calling them in those days, in in surgery. So uh, those are critical incidents that things like wrong site surgery or leaving an instrument inside a patient. And um, well, when that's, the, that um, stuff actually happens, does it? I thought that was it, just not anymore. The... <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> yeah, no, no. It used yeah. to happen though quite a lot, Peter, and yeah, okay. and um, we had um, we had um, essentially a task to implement the five steps to safer surgery, which are the checklists, um, which obviously we could go into if you want, but um, that's probably too much for, for now. But um, basically, I was I sort of led that um, alongside another colleague, a surgical colleague, and um, we tried to um, improve the engagement with the checklist. And then I, I then ended up leading a, a fairly uh, groundbreaking um, sort of uh, improvement project around measuring the engagement with the checklist. And I involved a whole bunch of trainee anaesthetists in that. So they all got uh, training in improvement, for, um, improvement work and um, training in the, you know, evaluating how a group of people, you know, sort of interact with that kind of tool in a in a clinical in a clinical environment. So, yeah. So I had a had a lot on my plate. Yeah. And um, so I imagine I, uh, when, when I you was, when you came to Gisborne, you would have been welcomed 
because of your experience and your qualifications, you would um, have been welcomed with open arms, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was welcomed for sure. Um, I had a pay free, like you know, it was a pay free for everyone that had arrived that time, and um, yeah, um, there was a lot of great things when I got here. I mean, I just. The, the environment, the, just the beauty of it, the the fact that I didn't have to pay for car parking was just <laughs> outstanding um, because, yeah. like, we used to have to pay a lot of money just to park in our place of work in the UK. Um, and, um, yeah, so there was a few, like, sort of um, little bits of things that were, were really, really uh, quite nice about the whole thing. And so I could go to work and not not even meet another car in five minutes and... Um, you know, it, it, it was, there was, I used to have coffee with my husband once a week, um, which I could never have done in Manchester. And it was, it was very chilled at the beginning, but, um, I, um, I'm not somebody who can just go to, to go to work and go home again. You know, I'm, I always look to see how we can get better at what we do. And, um, I saw a lot of things that I, uh, wanted to change and um so this was a the Gisborne, problem is a Gisborne you, hospital in those days this was dhb times wasn't it before te Fatu order yes this that's was, right so that's was it right. uh, tarafati uh dhb that you oh, were, or were yeah that you were employed by yeah 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 and, so i was um uh yeah i was keen to use my skills but Obviously, I know I'm completely aware that if you go in somewhere brand new and you go, oh, well, in such and such, we do this and you should be doing this too. And that's not a very well, you know, it's not a a, a way of going about things. I've done quite a lot of um, personal um, sort of, I don't know, what's the personal development, shall we do, or shall we say, over the years. And I, I know quite a lot about interactions and, and trying to, um, make sure that people are accepting and, and and understand before you're being understood. So I, I went in to understand what the system was like and um, and understand other people that were working within it before banging on about anything that I thought we could change. So I, I started quite slowly and I was enjoying probably about a year of just, just um, doing the job and... Um, having an amazing house, which I would never, ever have been able to afford in the UK. Um, and getting um, paid pretty well uh, and enjoying... Absolutely. En- enjoying oh, yeah. life in totally. good weather up on the East Coast. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the salary here is, is, is um, much more generous than, than the UK. Um, and the other thing, uh, well, the... It's basically um, the cost of living is, or at the time wasn't, you know, was was not desperately bad. So you know, it was it was like all of a sudden all the expenses that I was struggling to cover in the UK, um, I would have easily covered them with the money I was earning here. And I finally, to be honest, I finally felt that I was being paid my worth because in Gisborne and, and many of the regional doctors will understand this that. You know, there's there's not huge tiers of, of trainees in regional centres. So basically, there was a, a group of eight of us and we were it. So anything to do that required 
required an anaesthetist, came to the one person that was on call. And so there were no trainees in anaesthesia. And um, so uh, we were really beholden to anywhere in the hospital that needed us. And, you know, in the daytime, that might be um, radiology or um, for a scan that needed sedation, or it might be a an IV that was proving to be extremely difficult in the chemo ward, or it might be an epidural on, on the maternity unit, um, or you could be called immediately to theatre to do a C-section, um, or you could be called to ED for a respiratory arrest and end up in intensive care with a ventilated um, patient on life support. So so that was really, it was a very busy job. And... and um, um, human beings are the same pretty much anywhere. You know, they all need those kinds of services. And I suppose the job in Gisborne really proved itself to be what I trained for. Great. When I became a consultant at the end of my registrar years, they sort of give you a breadth of experience that will be, will, will equip you for pretty much anything. Um, you know, so not, not super specialised or anything like that. And that's kind of where I returned to. And I really, I relished it. I really wanted to be able to deal with, you know, in a critically ill child, I wanted to be able to, you know, deal with the whole breadth of everything. So yep. yeah. So it was the, great. It was yeah. great. So things are going well. You're feeling valued. You're enjoying life in Gisborne. You're enjoying your job. You've got your family there. And then comes yep. 2020 and this thing called COVID. <laughs> This thing called COVID arrives in the world, uh, and yep. then it's in New Zealand at the end of March of that year. And I guess you're working yep. in the front line in the hospital, so you have to prepare Gisborne Hospital for the onset of COVID. And we kept on being told for the onset of thousands of sick people who'd be coming in and overcrowding the hospitals. Uh, yes. Did you believe that things were going to be as bad as? you'd been told, as you were being told? At the time, absolutely, I did. I was, um, I was... Uh, did you believe <laughs> that this was a genuine thing and that there was there was going to be mass illness across the country? Yeah, yeah, I did. And that's because I was exposed to only the, um, you know, what was coming out of my profession, what was coming out of the medical council, what was coming out on the on on the um, the platforms that I was sort of touching into when when I needed extra you know professional information about you know certain clinical problems or whatever I would and those tended to be your run of the mill you know medical medical forums so um, yeah but in the I medical in the medical very, profession Lee was there any what's the phrase, any critical thinking about the modelling that was being used by the modellers at Imperial College in London and then at Auckland University as well? Did anybody think it through? Um, well, certainly not Not in my camp. I have to admit I was, I was actually um, quite drawn into that whole modelling thing that they did in Imperial um, and now I feel like a fool. <laughs> um, but... Um, at the beginning, you know, at the beginning, I was thinking, gosh, this could really be devastating. And um, I guess 
But 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 you must have was, remembered. Was, you must have remembered other pandemics as well, where there'd been huge warnings and they didn't come to much. Um. Yeah, I suppose so. Um. Yeah. You, I. I mean, I know it's all very well I with suppose. hindsight to look back on it now, but I mean, I'm just a layperson, but I heard all this stuff, and I thought, really? Yes. It ca- it can't yeah, possibly suppose, be this bad, can it? I, I suppose it's the perspective, you know, where, where you are at the time. And to be honest, I was, um, shall we say, a little bit distracted as well. You know, there were a lot of things going on um, for me at work at that time. and Because um, you were the head of anaesthesia we, by this stage, were you? Yeah, that's right. And so all I... I suppose I got completely absorbed in the possibility that that Gisborne Hospital might be exposed to COVID. And what would we do if thing if 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 it got really bad? I nearly said a, a rude word then. <laughs> um, um, you know, if it, you know, I, I just didn't. All I could see was antiquated infrastructure that that was in no way in a million years going to be... Was going to be ready. Yeah. Adequate. Yeah. Was going to be adequate. Yeah. So whatever um, happened, whatever happened at Gisborne Hospital, was there at any stage an onset of COVID cases? Was there a, a mass number of admissions to the hospital because of COVID? Um, no. There were four cases. <laughs> and... Um, one of those, I mean, this is initially, after yeah. that, I'm sure they've had plenty. This is at the first, the, I guess, Delta. Um, there was one patient admitted, and we all knew about that patient. Um, unfortunately for him, um, he got he got well enough to go home. <laughs> Strange, that, eh? Yeah. Um, How was he treated, um, you know? Uh, I probably shouldn't say because it's such a small. I don't really want to go into the detail of him because it's you, a small community. And you didn't give him ivermectin, did you? Uh, absolutely not. No. Okay. Um, that was that was a something that popped up um, uh, a lot later on for me um, in terms of it being. Even a possibility, you know, I I was just thinking about how I would respond to a, a, a surge of critical illness as the lead for the sharp end of medicine at Guzman Hospital, um, because it would have been us that had would have had to stay in the building, not down the road, but in the building for those ventilated patients. And by that time, there was only five of us and um, I knew that if COVID came to Gisborne chances are that it would have gone everywhere else you know because Gisborne's quite isolated no one sort of unless you're traveling around the whole country in a camper there's very few people that deliberately will just go to Gisborne it's not like uh, Wellington or some of the other bigger centers so I knew that if we got COVID, then then it was probably going to be rife everywhere else. And if it was Armageddon, like like they were saying it was going to be, then we would be on our own. And that's the that's the frame of reference I had. 
for how we started preparing for mm. it. Um, when, when did you realize? And, um, when did you realize it wasn't going to be quite as bad as the modelers and the doommeisters had said it would be? Oh, that's a really good question because. Um, I mean, we had the shutdown, um, didn't we, in New Zealand from when, yeah, that's uh, the thing, beginning see. of March till, uh, I mean, where I was, I think that was all over in a couple of months and then it came back again in the August for a little while. Uh, and then, Yeah, no, I mean, everything sort of relaxed a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it and got then, normal, yeah. And we were all, but, but we, we were on the, on the basis that no one was coming into the country. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of, you know, service industries had sort of like, Everything had gone to working from home, and um, that's been the um, a really um, destructive force, I think, uh, over over all the industries. Um, it, it it just you know it sort of it became a thing about oh well you know if it does come what will we do kind of thing is there going to be a problem and. Um, Everyone was hanging out for the vaccine, of course. And um, I was embroiled in a whole bunch of really, really quite serious other processes. Um, and I on dealing with and doing my job and looking yeah. after my family. Sure, and, sure. Um, was the hospital uh, at this stage... Working uh, under capacity with lots of spare beds uh, because of the um, you know the spaces being left for COVID patients, or was the hospital back to normal with operation surgery uh, continuing as shall we say normal uh, by this stage or not? Um, I'd like to. Well, I, um, it's really difficult to think back to all those times, but um, I guess we're talking the end of twenty twenty in, in, into calendar year twenty twenty one. Were you sort of operating what normally? I recall, yeah, what I recall is that there was no, there's never been a normal since since the lockdowns because essentially they they stopped everything other than emergency surgery, and so there was a huge backlog of patients who were needing surgery that couldn't have it during that time because there simply was a, um, you know, they shrunk everything down. Excuse me, I'm just going to cough. <coughs> um, sorry, I've got a bit of a cold. Um, right. uh, yeah, everything, everything shrunk down. And then, you know, it didn't just spring back to what it was before. There was an inertia in the system and um, the kind of the rules that were applied um, didn't just suddenly get reversed. It was it was like a stepwise sort of reluctant reply, um, return to to what what had been going on. And um, I think a lot of services suffered because of that oh, I'm working for home, from home kind of situation. Sure. Because everyone was so, everyone was so fearful. Mm, you know, like administrative staff, administrative staff that, that, that ordinarily you just walk up the stairs and go and speak to them. They weren't there. And mm. you'd, you'd have to bring them or 
arranged for a time when they would actually be at work to to speak to them. Um, so you know, as I think, um, process-wise, a lot of other stuff was affected by that whole mindset that you know, what if someone, you know, what if I got the infection? Um, we had a lot of staff who who would come up with in enormously convoluted reasons as to why they shouldn't be at work um, or why they needed to be allowed to um, stand down. I mean, you know, having a, for instance, a pregnant relative at home um, was a reason at one point. Um, <laughs> Dear me. We you know, there's to, all sorts of... We just seemed to lose the enthusiasm to work, didn't we? Beca- we became very fearful. Well, we I mean, did. I, mean, we, I don't want. I yeah, don't want to. When you look back on it now, that, though, you don't, don't you think it was, it was <coughs> silly the the fear that was instilled into us by our politicians and and health bureaucrats? Oh well, I I certainly feel like that for sure because right. I've obviously gone through a process of of um, recalibration, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but but I. At the time, um, the you know the fear was was enormous. It really was, and um, yeah, people were just so. I suppose relieved to be able to go. Oh well, I can do most of this at home, so that's what I'll do. And mm. um, the place became a bit desolate for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can so we talk, it was. Can we talk about 2021, uh, Lee, and yeah. the arrival of the vaccine? Famously, 2021, Jacinda Ardern said, it will be the year of the vaccine. And so away we went. Mm. Uh, controversy about how slow we were to order it. Uh, then we had, heaven forbid, all these vaxathons and, uh, you know, just just when you look back on it now, 2021 was a year of madness you know a whole television weekend devoted to yeah. getting a medical procedure and people totally and utterly unqualified <laughs> to do medical procedures sticking needles in other people's arms i mean it was quite extraordinary so as a doctor i guess you had to didn't you and you were you were happy to take it uh in in june of 2021 you were mandated to to become vaccinated as a medical professional as a doctor well, um, firstly, I'll say that because I'm also functional medicine trained, I had a number of concerns about it. But I, um, and I also had a colleague who um, is extremely courageous, who um, ultimately ended up being mandated out because um, he had actually read the science and he was talking to me at times and saying, Lee, you need to, you need to see what's going on here. Um, this is um, not good. Um, he kept talking about the messenger RNA and um, what's, what's very, um, well, what makes me feel, uh, not ashamed, but 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 embarrassed. Really, is that I kind of know 
a lot about <laughs> messenger RNA because my research, I actually did reverse transcription PCR. And um, I had a real handle on the science at that time, but not when I was going through this. And I was so overwhelmed by what was going on with me and my role and some matters that me and a number of other colleagues were dealing with at the hospital that I kind of failed to do the due diligence that I needed to do. But I delayed having it. I delayed because I thought what I'd do is I'd work out if anyone got sick. Um, <laughs> I thought, well, I'll just see what happens to my colleagues because they're all for it. And I, I, I also have a little bit of a, probably a... Um, uh, I often question myself before I, I'll question, oh, well, there must be other people that, you know, have looked at this in detail. They think it's, it's a, a you know, a, a safe product and, you know, always sort of going back to that. And I also looked at sources within the natural health space as well. Um, but not, not that, you know, not, not that in too much detail has to be said because now I know, um, I know a lot more about it, but um, I was just reticent. And then um, things were um, stressful and I I just you did basically it. decided to do it. But I did it with a I, – I did a belt and braces nutritional um, program around the time that I did it. So I I kind of had cottoned on to the idea that there may be some particular agents that could mitigate the effects of the spike protein if it were a problem. If it were a problem, I mean, <laughs> uh, we can talk about that in a bit. But um, I, yeah, so what's, I did all so of that. So what did you do, the belt it, and braces? What was your, for want of a better word, insurance so I, policy? I was, um, I've always supplemented my diet since 2002. Um, I had a, um, the reason I got into research, the reason I started looking for something that then ended up being functional medicine was because I was asking questions about root cause, root cause of, of disease that I was seeing, especially in critical care. And I had by that point gone through a very, quite a long journey of learning what I should and shouldn't be on and, um, so I was already supplementing with vitamins, minerals, cofactors, fish oil, a few other bits and bobs, a bit of ashwagandha. And, um, and then I obviously became aware that there were certain products that had been, there was a program that was promoted in my sphere outside of work, obviously, that was good for protecting you against the possible side effects of the jab. So that's what I did. And there was glutathione in there that was um a really i won't mention any specific products but there was some that had been almost tailor-made now that i look back on it um for the for the you know sort of the potential effects and i was doing that um all the time that i was around the time i was having the jabs and i had them three weeks apart which which um <laughs> i just can't fathom now i I must have needed my head red. 
Yeah. Um, so obviously, I, from what happened, from what developed the the insurance policy that you took with those supplements, that didn't work. Yep. So you you had the the vaccinations in June and July of 2021, but then yeah. within a few weeks, you were in real trouble, weren't you? You were in real, real trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had both of the jabs in June. And um, I, I have to say that it's important to know that I had a very, very sore arm after the first one. And people go, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, everyone had a sore arm. But no, not everyone did. And if you had a really, really sore arm on the first occasion and then you were off sick either on on either occasion, but I was off sick on the second one, I actually had um, what I now believe was an endotoxemia after I had the jab. And um, we can go into the reasons why I thought I think that now. But um, So I was off sick for a day after I had mine. And then I went back to work. Um, but something definitely happened for me that, that day. And um, so I just carried on. Uh, all, the, all the while, um, I also would mention that I was trying to become a little bit fitter as well around this time. So I was also training for a 5K run. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but for me, that was a big deal to get back into the, the exercise um, sort of regime, I guess. So I was running on a treadmill every day. And um, now I know that, obviously, is the worst thing that you can do. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, on the, I was probably, I, I've continued that program for about a month and then I dropped it off because, you know, that was, you know, around the time of the jab, then just just sort of stopped doing as many things as I was doing. And then on a Monday, I did a full day's work. Um, it was pretty hectic. I didn't get a lunch break. I probably didn't drink very much. And I was teaching them a, um, a junior doctor as well the whole time. And um, I um, did a general surgery list that day. I went home, got home, realised the fridge was empty, um, legged it to the uh, left, left my daughter's doing their own thing and um, I went, got some food and came back and made, was well, my intention was to make a meal, but when I got home, I developed abdominal pain on the, sort of as I was getting the shopping in the car. And so I drove home in some discomfort. I thought, oh, this is just a bit of uh, indigestion, whatever. And then I got home and then I couldn't lift the shopping off the ground and I laid down on the ground in my kitchen and I told my daughter to put the shopping away and I was still there after she had put the shopping away and made the dinner. And um, uh, the pain in my abdomen got worse and worse and worse. And uh, my thoughts to myself were, oh gosh, how embarrassing. Dr. Willoughby gets pancreatitis or Dr. Willoughby gets gallstones, which, you know, as a as a functional medicine educated person, I thought I would potentially, um, you know, be able to avoid those things because I'm so, you know, careful about what my diet is and all of that stuff. But anyway, it got so bad that I uh, 
um, I said I said to my daughter, oh, you, you need to get your dad because um, he wasn't home yet. And I, um, he came back and he took me to the ED. And um, by that time, I was pretty much incapacitated. I couldn't walk. Um, I vomited all over the pavement. I was put in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk and then took into the um, reception um they were asking me to fill out paperwork, which I was clearly in, incapable of doing. And um, a nurse came out to do some observations and then looked at me. And they know me, you see, because <laughs> I go to ED all the time to resuscitate <laughs> Of course, you work people. there. You're a senior you know. doctor there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they whipped me into the rapid, the rapid sort of assessment room and um, one of the doctors um, who knows me really well came in and just said, hey, she needs to be in recess. So it took me through to recess. And the thing, I was in unconscionable levels of pain by that point. And I've had two kids. I've had both kids without pain relief. Um, I'm not somebody who is, you know, and I can't, you know, I can deal with pain. But this was like next level um, and um, I didn't have any blood pressure. Um, my heart rate had gone down into the 40s. My abdomen was swelling and um, they were scanning me and doing ECGs and arranging for a scan. And and all, all I knew was I was just in this so much pain. Um, basically, a colleague of mine came in and gave me some pain relief because the ED folks didn't want to give me pain relief because my blood pressure was unrecordable. And um, so finally my colleague who obviously is used to dealing with this sort of kind of no blood pressure but still be able to manage that um, gave me a really big slug of something that then enabled me to stay still for the scan. And I had a CT scan Um and I remember being in the scanner, telling myself to keep still, keep still, Lee, keep still, Lee. And because um, I know what can go, you know, what can muck up the pictures and stuff. And um, anyway, um, they were none the wiser after the scan. So um, a number of my colleagues, I, I, I think, must have gone into the scanning room to, because obviously they're like probably wondering what, the, what on earth is going on here. Um and um, they took me back to the you know, emergency room. Uh, by that time, I was kind of sort of semi-comatosed. And because um, I'm not used to those strong medications. And fortunately, it, it had sort of taken away the pain for a while or, or reduced it. And um, But the thing was, there was no... There was no rate- there was no radiologist on call in Gisborne that night, was there? No, so, there was no... So the scan know, was, had to be read to by somebody in, where, Queensland, in Brisbane? Yeah, so so the um, there's an, a system called Everlight where there are many, many radiologists. I don't know the number or the detail, but many people in Australasia contribute to an external um, radiology service so that for those remote areas like... I would imagine in the outback in Australia, for instance, or you know, places where there aren't you know, full full contingents of 
the various tiers of people that you would normally get in a big centre. Um, so there's an availability of being able to interpret a scan at any hour of the day through this system, and that's what they used, and they use it all the time. It's not like it was unusual. Um, so then about an hour later, so I'm still sort of, I, I imagine it was about an hour, I think my husband said it was about between an hour, an hour and a half, an hour and a half later. Um, uh, my surgical colleague came running in and going, Lee, I know why you're in so much pain. Now, bearing in mind, someone had just, just told me that I had a UTI. <laughs> and this was, What's this the, was a, sort of more... A urinary tract a infection. A urinary tract infection. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's not normal for a urinary tract infection to lead to a bradycardia and no blood pressure um, and abdominal swelling. Um. And um, basically, he came in and told me, you've got a superior mesenteric vein thrombosis. What so does what that, that mean? means <laughs> is that that means I had a clot. A clot had completely occluded the vein that drains out of the small intestine and quite a lot of the colon. So my entire absorptive gut, so the place where all my food and things gets processed it is it obviously is supplied by an artery and then the vein takes the blood away to uh to go back to the heart and in this case the blood flow from my gut was blocked and so the reason my, my belly was so swollen is because blood was just pumping into my gut but not out and i had so my, my small intestine was hugely swollen and there was free fluid in the abdomen. So it was leaking fluid into the abdominal cavity because my gut was so swollen. And that's really why I was in so much pain um, and why I, I had come to, come to the conclusion that I would die actually and I would have done um, because you can't survive without your gut. And... Um, so when he, when he said that, I knew I was awake or cognizant enough to know what that meant. And he said, we need to put you on a heparin infusion. And that was an anticoagulation, you know, a blood thinner. And I said, absolutely do it kind of thing. Um, and um, I gave them my arm and I said, do it now. I want the bolus now. I said, come on, guys, this is my gut. <laughs> I remember saying that because they were thinking about taking me to intensive care before doing any of it. And I said, no way. Mm. I said, you get that in now. And they did. Um, thanks to them. And, um, um, the guy that, um, interpreted my scan, um, I owe him a lot. Um, do you know whereabouts exactly um, he was? You said Queensland. Was he in the city? Was he out in the... Back block I, somewhere. I can't actually remember. I did look him up. I actually wrote to him. <clears throat> um, and, and for reasons that I'll explain later. But, um, yeah, because the thing is that about him is that he he was a vascular and interventional radiologist. So he's done a vascular fellowship. And the reason that's important is that um, the blood vessels in the abdomen are extremely complex and... Um, they're not your regular findings, you know. 
having a superior mesenteric vein thrombosis is a really quite, well, it's an extremely uncommon diagnosis. In, in the 25 years prior to that day that I had practiced, I had never seen one. And, you know, bearing in mind the consequences of it, um, I would definitely have been involved in the care of somebody who had come into, out, you know, wherever I was um, with, that, with that problem. Um, so, it, yeah, it was, it was a really unusual thing to happen because in the literature, if you look at that diagnosis, it really only happens to those unfortunate people who've had chronic, chronic inflammation in the back of the abdomen. So pancreatitis, for instance, if it's chronic and relapsing, um, or if you've had lots and lots of abdominal operations that, that would you know, mean that there's lots of inflammation in the mesentery and um, that's the layer that, that sort of hangs, that the gut hangs from where all the blood vessels are. Um, so, yeah, it was very odd. So um, I, I was just very fortunate to have had someone of such skill um, report my scan and um, he he saved my life really. So do you believe that what happened to you, that thrombosis, was as a consequence of being vaccinated? Or was um, it just coincidence? No, in a word, I think it absolutely was. And um, I know I'll, I was gaslit at the time, and I'm sure I'll be gaslit as a result of saying this to you. Um, but I have got very good reasons to um, back what I've, my conclusion up. Um, um, I, well, for start off, it's a rare diagnosis. I mean, why on earth would that happen to me, given the usual predisposing conditions? Second thing is I also had testing after the event to exclude any clotting disorders. So if I, uh, protein C or protein S deficiency or some, rare disorder that would make me more likely to clot, then I definitely don't have any of those because I was tested for it. Um, my pre-existing history, medicine, medical history, is I had a query appendicitis in 2018, but that came to nothing. But apart from that, I really haven't had any major, major problems. And I was on no medication, um not allergic to anything. Um, I was, as you might kind of expect, uh, I was extremely uh, good at looking after my own health. I was exercising regularly. Um, I was eating good food. And my sleep pattern, I guess, probably was pretty bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, the things, there are various things. And also, I, I was a little bit dehydrated probably that day. But, you know, we got dehydrated regularly in our job. Um, it doesn't suddenly mean that you get a thrombosis in one of the major vessels. So um, it, I didn't really know that it was the jab for quite some time because I was, like, obviously asking the question, why on earth did this happen to me? And I'm sure a lot of my colleagues were asking that question because um, you know, a number of the staff saw me in incapacitated. And um, 
so it was only once I sort of woke up the next day and sort of started putting two and two together, I thought, well, what? And then I thought, oh, I wonder if. And then I, I went into it in a, the rabbit hole, shall we say. And I, I, I think rabbit hole is used as a, detri- you know, a, a, a derogatory term. Of course it is. Of course it is. But, but, but you're scientifically, but medically but trained. I, you, you, I went. Yeah, you, you know the literature, the don't scientific. you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, um, just as that's what I mentioned before, is I um, I am fairly high up in the amount of knowledge I have about inflammation, about the endothelium. I used to grow endothelium from um, not not from any any awful source. Don't you know? Before anyone screams, um, I used to grow primary endothelia from the um, umbilical cord um, that had been discarded after, um, you know, the the child had been born. I used those because they were actual cells from, you know, they're not cell lines. They have all the qualities of normal endothelial cells. And I used those to be able to work out the biology of the endothelium under inflammatory stress. So I an endothelium is the lining of the blood vessels. So I have a very detailed knowledge of um, blood vessel physiology, um, the lining of the blood vessels, which are affected heavily by the components of the injection. And also um, I have obviously my functional medicine lens on it as well. So... Um, I also know a lot about the gut because my project that I did, my research project, was looking at systemic inflammation that has been seeded by the gut. And that was way back in 2004 um, when all this literature was starting to cascade out of various organisations about the role of the gut and the microbiome and, you know, in, in inflammation in general. So I kind of know a lot about all of those pathways and the immune system and um so when i started reading literature it wasn't like i had to go away and just you know learn about the processes they were using to measure stuff i knew all about them because most of them i'd done already um and so i understood um the clotting cascade and the role of the endothelium and the ace2 receptors the way that the spike protein operate, operates. And obviously then it became an unfolding learning about all the different components of the jab because they're all, <laughs> um, well, <sighs> if, I were, I, I, if I were trying, if I sat down, if I was somebody who was inclined to hurt other people, which clearly has never ever been any part close to me um if i went if i sat down to devise something that could harm other individuals then this product pretty pretty much ticks all the boxes seriously it's that bad yeah yeah i mean that is a that's a huge claim to make lee and i'm sure you're well aware of the 
the seriousness yes. of the claim that you've made. So you're saying that everybody who has been vaccinated, and I presume you had the, the Pfizer vaccine, but whether it was Pfizer or yeah. Moderna, the, the mRNA, an mRNA vaccine, you're saying that it has the potential to be as harmful as it, any any um, material could possibly be inside the human body? Um, it's multifaceted and it has many, many consequences within the human body. You can't just look at one thing in isolation. And um, what I would say is that's an alarming thing for people to know, and I, I understand the gravity of that statement, but uh, the other thing to appreciate is that not all injections were the same. And yeah. going back to what I said about Going back to what I said about, you know, just drawing your attention to the fact that I had a really sore arm and I had a, a like a, an illness immediately after I had the second jab. The reason for that is because my jab had something in it. It had absolutely active ingredients. But unfortunately, we now know, and this is all, all information that has been suppressed by our medical regulator, and our government, and there is a wealth of literature and information now to demonstrate that the injections were different yeah. in terms of lethality as far as batch numbers concerned. So the batches were not consistent. Were, the pro the, the, the right. manufacturing process, uh, and I don't know whereabouts most of our vaccines were manufactured, possibly in Australia, I guess, uh, that the the consistency through the batches was just not there. Yes. Wow. So in, so you it, could so it it's was, it's Russian. So so lots of people have had yes. the injection we know and they're fine. Sure, they've caught COVID, but they haven't had the the dreadful after effects that you've suffered, and that thousands of others have suffered. No, I mean. It's kind of a bit of Russian roulette. I've heard this This has been stated by a number of different very eminent um, scientific and medical people who have been speaking out across the world. Um, it's, it's a Russian roulette because there's a, um, you know, there's those that probably got close to saline or just saline and... Um, there are those people that had a possibly moderately harmful concoction and then there are those that had very, very severely um, problematic <laughs> um, patches. And so it, it, that's why... That's one of the things I observed after all of this, um, you know, like the division that's been created the apartheid that's been created, uh, whichever you want to, it's, it's a bit of an inflammatory terminology that, but um, the way that the country and community has been divided by just the sheer methodology of how this was delivered. So those people who had no effects whatsoever are looking at the others that that did have effects, like they were, they've grown three heads. 
and um, they have no empathy for those people. They just think, well, it's a vaccine. And that's the big problem here is that vaccines have largely, and I say largely because not completely, have been what people have regarded as a safe intervention for many, many years. And and if you look at um, big databases up to 2021 when this was rolled out, there were very few um, you know, signals from, you know, safety signals from the usual childhood vaccinations and even even the ones that have been introduced more recently. And I had my kids vaccinated. I had them vaccinated a little bit later because of my knowledge of the immune system and stuff, but they still did have their jabs and I had my jabs. I'm, I was totally, and, you know, to some extent still now, I you know the idea of vaccination is a wonderful one. Um, but so far we've not really seen a vaccine cause mayhem. Or if it has caused mayhem, it's not been um, big enough to, to cause a stir. And um, the public are sort of habituated to their word vaccine, meaning yeah, safe and effective. It's, it's you know, or you. safe and, 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 and a good thing to have, you know, to protect you. It's to kind of, it will protect you from the illness that we're, you know, we're obviously, you know, um, giving you the changed, you know, virus, the, the dead virus or the dead part of the bacteria or whatever. Um, and so that that's the thing. People who don't know beyond that have taken judgment on those saying that, don't be daft, this is a vaccine, how could it possibly cause your X, Y, Z? Um, and um, I would class many doctors in that class, class as well. So if you're... So fortunately for me, I was never in the habit of doing jabs myself. I never got involved in that. Uh, my job never in sort of involved anything to do with vaccination. Um, and um, I, I obviously, when you're not examining the evidence in, you know, you examine the evidence that's relevant to your field, and there's a huge amount of it, you know. Um, there's a mountain of CPD that one could do just in your own sphere. But to have, you know, to actually drill into vaccine safety in a very, very rapid, um, you know, sort of time frame is not what people usually do. And, um, no, you, I, there's an awful lot of trust. I hold my, there's an awful lot of trust in, yes. in, in the medical profession. But I would su- suggest, Lee, that in the last, two years, the public's trust in the medical profession has decreased considerably as a consequence of this vaccination program. And I think that um, is that is very, that's, that's a sad indictment of the way that the medical profession has been regulated and governed in this country, is it not? Um, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And I, um, I am ashamed of medicine in its, you know, in the largest sense, 
There are so, so many amazing, competent, caring, um, yeah, intelligent individuals in medicine. But they, they're all human beings and they were all spun a fear, a fear narrative like everybody else was. I'm not saying any... I'm not making excuses for, for this. I'm actually going to move on to what I, I think of it all. But um, the um, some many doctors will not have examined what you know the vaccine, whether this was a vaccine or not. Um, you know, like in the conventional sense, they wouldn't have known about any of the molecular techniques that 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 were used to make this product. And um, they wouldn't see it as their job or have the time to do that. No, because they um, are... When faced, fa- when they, faced with a pandemic... They trust, of, they trust MedSafe, don't they? Yeah. They, they? They trust the Medical Council. They Absolutely. trust the yeah. Ministry of Health. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I would like to say, though, that the, the safety and... Um, I don't know, this this whole thing has run roughshod. That's an understatement. They have literally removed every single ethical and moral principle that run that, that we ran by in medicine. So <clears throat> excuse me. Um the first is the Hippocratic Oath, of course. <laughs> Do First, no, do no harm. First, do no harm. Yeah. So, and I was—I'm old enough to have actually taken that oath, and um, just having a drink. Um, I'm old enough to have taken that oath earnestly in my huge um, university hall where we all graduated, and it, it rules my—it rules my everyday clinical existence um i take it seriously and there has to be good um you know to to put someone under risk um you know we do that in surgery every single day and i'm used to dealing with managing that that risk but um but to do it without any knowledge of what the potential problems could be is is shameful um to take on that as a as a treatment or a, an intervention and um deliver it stating that it's safe and effective when there's no no data at all is going against every fibre of of that oath. So, Lee, um, are we ever going to get to the truth of this? I mean, I know we have a royal commission at the moment. There are politicians who want to either have another royal commission or expand the scope of the current one. I mean, surely for, for fairness for honesty in a so-called democracy in this country. We've got to we've got to have a wide-ranging inquiry into the COVID response and in particular into the 
the efficacy, the safety of the vaccine, don't we? It's got to be done. And even if people are found to have been remiss, um, in fact, more than remiss in the jobs that they did, well, that's just too bad. Don't we need some honesty in all this? Oh, we, we do. And I, I guess that's um, why I suppose one of, one of the things is why am I coming out now? Why am I? Why am I? Why have I decided to tell my story now? And um, I've been mentally struggling with speaking out for two years. Um, early on in the piece, I was too sick to even contemplate it. Um, and um, I, I think. <sighs> It's. I've lost my train of thought. Sorry. Yeah, but I I understand that. But you are working in your functional medicine area. Your your income, your your status in the Gisborne community is nowhere near what it was because you declined to, of course, be be boosted when that was mandated. So you've lost your job as an anaesthetist now. So you're working in functional medicine. Uh, and you know, life yeah. is life is not what it was. But you've made a, a massive personal sacrifice, and I'd suggest a physical sacrifice as well. But now you want some truth, don't you? And you'd be prepared to to testify to give your experience of what you believe is the truth about what has happened in the last couple of years in this country. Yeah, no, I have to speak out because I mean. Uh, I, I just mentioned the Hippocratic Oath, but obviously there's the, you know, like informed consent is another thing, um, which I, many of my colleagues have addressed on a number of occasions on RCR, which um, I won't go into, but um, it's a really, really important part of medicine and people were failed um, in, in, enormously. Um, there, there was no informed consent and... What people, I think, the public don't realise is that this has always been an experimental treatment. Um, You have to appreciate that this kind of product, this messenger RNA platform, as they call it, um, has there's been no messenger RNA products ever authorised for human use. So this is literally a brand new technology that has never been tested for safety. And when you look at the study that was, you know, the the trial that they used to try and substantiate the efficacy of this jab, um, it turns out that that trial is baseless. I mean, it was baseless because it's useless anyway for, for many, many reasons. But it's baseless. That data does not apply and never did because the product that was injected into everybody around the world was not the product that they tested during the trial. And so the product that's been delivered to the world population has got many, many more risks than the risks that already existed in the one that they gave in the trial. When they did that trial, at three months, they released um, a um, sort of adverse incident reporting report um and um that was uh 
requested under a, an OIA, I believe. And I remember getting hold of that report and um, there were nine pages at the end of that report. This is after three months of the rollout. This is not in New Zealand. This was in America and um, the UK and obviously Europe, I presume. Um, after you know that three-month mark, this is what they released, the nine pages of adverse incidents of, uh, um, of importance, so I can't remember the exact wording. And literally that nine pages was no lines were, were missed, no gaps, no paragraphs. It was an A to Z of all of the different categories of disorders that happened as a result of it. Jeez. And they just happened to be every single autoimmune condition known to man, every thrombotic complication in any part of the circulation you can think of. It was all there. And when you look at the data that they... I mean, there was a quite a big focus on um, the women who were pregnant that received the jab during that study. And um, even if you don't sort of like dig into the numbers and try and you know judge conclusions from it, just the sheer um, blasé kind of, oh, well, we don't know what happened to these women. Like, they were not monitoring. So not only did they you know, not, you know, not have the, you know, like the, the safety um, proven beforehand. They didn't consent people right, but but they were also, um, you know, they were delivering a product that wasn't actually validated in any study whatsoever. Um, and they were was... giving it to pregnant women. Uh, they were giving it to pregnant women, which is like a, a no-no. Yep. Yep. To a new experimental product, I know, and I then know. they weren't me- they weren't measuring the safety. They weren't going, oh well, you know, let's have you in, you know, on a daily basis initially, and then we'll have you in weekly, and then we'll see how it's going. It, it was literally just a mass experiment. And um, do, and do you know what, uh, Lee? I was working a radio show in 2021 and saying these things, and was basically told to leave because this was I know. it was upsetting the station's income because the government didn't like what I was saying. So that was basically the end of my mainstream career. So. We all make sacrifices. My, yeah. my, uh, I didn't get vaccinated uh, because I wanted to see whether or not it worked. I know now it doesn't work. Uh, and I'm very pleased that I, I stood my ground. I feel sorry for what happened to you physically, but I certainly respect to the utmost what you've uh, said in the last, what, hour and a quarter you've talked to me about your experiences. Uh, so I... I'd like to just conclude now by saying thank you so much for your time uh, this afternoon. Thank you for your strength and for your courage. And I hope that you will keep on, well, what's the old saying, fighting the good fight, uh, because I know there's an awful lot of, of work that needs to be done for the truth to come out about this. And there's just yeah. got, got to be some consequences down the track, does there not? 
Yeah, def- definitely. And, and and there's so much more to say because, yeah, the booster side of things is another matter. And and then, you know, what I've seen in my my own practice and the degree to which I've witnessed the effects of this injection are, you know, it's, it's yeah, um, very sobering, mm. very... Um, uh, Dis- you know, it makes you despair sometimes. Yeah, it takes you a dark. It takes you to a dark place, and it does. You know, you. That's one of the problems with telling people about it. You know, what you. You know, that you suspect that you know they shouldn't do this because there's a problem. Um, they go why? You know, and then you, you give them information that takes them to that dark place. Like, why would they do this to us? Well, that maybe is the ultimate question that has to be asked in a public inquiry. Mm. Lee? Absolutely. Lee Willoughby, thank you so much for your time this afternoon here on Reality Check Radio. You're very welcome. Thanks, Peter. It was a privilege. Committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio.